Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about all things fertility from Women's Health Melbourne. Providing the answers to our questions is Dr. Ray Lu, the Director of Women's Health Melbourne, who is a gynaecologist and infertility expert in male and female infertility and works to get the results from every available tool, not just IVF. When we think about infertility and trying to conceive, the first thing that comes to mind is IVF. Turns out IVF is not the first thing we should be thinking of when it comes to infertility. It's quite an advanced process. Today, Dr. Raylia Liu is going to talk to us about what is IVF. IVF stands for in vitro fertilisation, which technically means fertilisation, so egg and sperm getting together in vitro, outside of the body. And so the definition of IVF means that as a doctor, you take eggs from the woman and sperm from the man and put them together outside the body to form an embryo which is the first stage of human life. IVF can help a lot of couples conceive uh, in a variety of ways. It can also help single women conceive with donor sperm and can help same-sex female couples conceive uh, using a sperm donor as well. IVF can get around so many processes that are necessary for fertilisation in the body. And so for some couples where the reason for their infertility is unexplained, uh, without even knowing where the exact problem is, IVF can act as a get-around. IVF can also help someone conceive with a statistical advantage. A woman every month releases one egg and has one chance with that one egg to make a healthy baby. With IVF, through using medications to help the ovary respond in an amplified way and collecting the eggs outside of the body, um, we can ensure that a woman who has a good ovarian reserve can release many eggs in a month. In many instances, a woman can release as many eggs in a single month as she might naturally release in 12 months of trying. So that, in a statistical sense, improves the chance of finding a good embryo and making a normal healthy baby. IVF can help where there's a severe sperm problem, where sperm doesn't work in its function of fertilising the egg by using a technique called ICSI, which is when we inject sperm into the egg physically. It stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Sounds cuter than that. It does sound cuter than that. And ICSI was only invented um, in the early 90s, and it's helped men who would never have been able to have their own children to conceive. So it's a really game-changing technology for male factor infertility. 
Having the eggs and sperm outside the body also allows us to use other technologies um, where in a world-class lab environment um, we have the privilege to access. So, for example, we can use advanced sperm selection techniques, um, otherwise known as IMSI, um, where we take sperm and we magnify it and we have a look at the internal structures of the sperm to help us choose the right sperm that's more likely to make a baby. We can select embryos in an embryoscope um, at Melbourne IVF where I practice. We have the world's best and most latest embryoscopes, which are not only the world's best incubators uh, for embryos, but it also allows us to monitor embryos by video surveillance 24-7. And so we not only select the best embryo by virtue of what it looks like as a blastocyst stage embryo on day five. So What's a blastocyst? A blastocyst is, is just the stage of an embryo when it's just ready to implant into the uterus. So it's a day five embryo. Um, it's got about 250 cells and it should look a certain way if it's going to result in a healthy baby. So that's, that's one way that we select embryos. But with the embryoscope, we can also see how embryos divide in the earliest stages. So we see what they're doing and we see if they're jumping through the hoops that they're meant to in the stage that and, and the um, order that they're meant to so that we can select the embryo that not only looks the best but also behaves appropriately. Um, so that's a great technology. Um, we can also use advanced technology to select embryos that are genetically normal and that applies for both couples who might carry a genetic illness like cystic fibrosis and perhaps want to avoid having the stress of a potentially affected um, baby. Um, and we can also help couples who, due to factors like advanced parental age, are statistically more likely to have embryos that make mistakes um, of a genetic nature and to avoid transfer of embryos that might end in a miscarriage or a baby with a syndrome like Down syndrome. IVF sounds like easy. It solves so many problems on both male and female infertility. It's not so easy, is it? It's quite a process to go through and, and I wouldn't call it easy. Uh, for a woman, um, even if there's a male problem that's driving a couple to go through this process, the vast burden of treatment is on the woman. And one thing that I focus in my practice is trying to reduce that treatment burden as much as is physically possible and that's by adjusting medication regimens to try and limit side effects and to reduce the number of needles that a woman has to inject because most of the medications in IVF are injections um, to make sure that the patient is looked after in a really um, boutique environment and a very pleasant environment mm -hmm. to make sure that we take a lot of the stress off our patients by personally being um, involved at every step along the way. And so they've got a port of call and someone looking after them and, and being on their team and not surrendering them to the system um, of, of a protocolised IVF unit. Um, so there's lots of ways that um, IVF can be stressful, but we can actually address some of those stresses as best we can to make the process as easy as possible. From a physical perspective, um, IVF involves going through approximately two weeks. It does vary on an individual basis and, and the way I treat my patients in my clinic, you know, no two patients will have identical treatments. In terms of the first approximately two weeks, we're growing eggs and we're um, preventing ovulation before we're ready to collect them. So it involves taking some medications generally every day and in terms of monitoring we watch by ultrasound scans and occasionally we have a few blood tests to check if if we think that there's a risk on an ultrasound scan that hormones are not um, in the right order. 
Okay, so a patient's been seeing you, they've been trying naturally, they've had a few tests. What, at the end of all of this, it's decided that it's time to try IVF. You've mentioned it's about a two-week process. Now, there's some steps that we've not discussed and we, we might in a further episode regarding police checks and meeting nurses and psychologists, but we've done all of that. It's day one of my cycle. What, what happens on day one? So on day one of the cycle, we decide that we're going to do treatments and patients will contact my clinic and what I do, just a phone call, and what I do is I then activate a treatment for them and um, it will be a plan that we've discussed previously in a consultation. So prior to IVF, we'll have met on several occasions, we'll have decided that it's the right treatment pathway for them um, or a treatment pathway that they prefer to use Um, and we will make a, a, a treatment plan that's been previously discussed and explained both by myself and also by one of my nursing staff. And then on the second or third day of the cycle, the day that we're going to start treatment, patients will come in and see one of my nursing staff to go over that again so that it's really clear what the instructions are. I tend to see patients for the first time on about day eight of their treatment, so they've already been at home independently using medications up to that point. And they have an ultrasound scan on day eight, which I interpret. Um, Some of my patients come to my rooms and I do the scan personally. And other patients, if they prefer, can have the scan done closer to home uh, as long as it's a high-quality ultrasound provider so that I can interpret that result and use the the findings to adjust their treatment. Um, Sometimes it'll just be continuing on the course of what we'd previously discussed, but many times I'll adjust um, what we're doing based on that ultrasound scan. And then also on the basis of the first ultrasound scan, I'll decide when to arrange a second ultrasound for that patient. Mm -hmm. And generally that second ultrasound is to make a decision about when the egg collection will be. Okay, so that's kind of an overview of the whole process. Day one I call the nurse and then day two what happens. So when we say day one, that's the first day of the menstrual cycle. So the first day of your period, you call the nurse and say, I've got my period. Day two, we see the nurse and we have our first treatment of hormones or what what happens? So the medications used in an IVF cycle have some things in common and, and differ somewhat as well. So the individual treatment will be different for every patient. But in principle, we're using follicle stimulating hormone to grow the eggs in the ovary and get them ready and mature for an egg collection. So that's more than one egg in a cycle we're trying to get to grow? Yeah, so in a in an IVF cycle what we do is we take advantage of the fact that while humans have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to have one baby at a time and release one egg at a time, there are other eggs in waiting that under natural circumstances lose out in the competition and don't end up being the egg that's released. But at A few days earlier, they're at a similar stage of development of the ultimate winning egg. So on day two, we inject some hormones to try and stimulate more eggs to be produced. Yeah, so what we do with the medications in IVF is we overcome the natural barriers to other eggs developing and bring along the group of eggs that were at a similar stage and not allowing one particular individual egg to win the race. So I'm aiming with the medication I prescribe and the dose that I prescribe to, in an ideal circumstance, uh, arrange for about 10 to 15 eggs to develop at the same time. Now, there'll be other circumstances outside of of IVF where I might be aiming for more eggs to come along. Like, for example, 
in a cycle where I'm helping a patient to freeze eggs electively, I might be aiming for more than 10 to 15 eggs to come along if a person's capable of, of doing that. But in IVF, um, because we're aiming to put an embryo back and trying to get have the patient conceive in that particular month, it's important, A, to get a good number of eggs, but B, not to get too many because we don't want the patient to have complications of something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, and that's a side effect of IVF where if you have too many eggs develop in the one month, um, hormones can go a little bit crazy and a little bit berserk and we don't want that if you're going to try and get pregnant that month. If someone does have an overreaction, avoiding hyperstimulation syndrome is actually re relatively easy for me, for my patients, but it does involve delaying having an embryo transfer, which is the second part of an IVF cycle, until another month. And if somebody's making more than 20 eggs, for example, what I'll usually do is pick up the eggs, get the sperm, put them together to make embryos, but then freeze the embryos when they get to the blastocyst stage on day five and wait for the patient's body to go back to normal before trying to get them pregnant. So it sounds like the first stage of IVF and the first stage of egg freezing is the same, exactly the same? It's different, so, but it's very similar. Okay. So in terms of trying to get the ovary to make more eggs than it naturally would, it's the same. Okay. But because the outcome that you're aiming for is different, yep. being with IVF, the outcome being immediate pregnancy, yes. and with egg freezing being with creating as many eggs as possible, I do change the way I stimulate the ovary in egg freezing compared to IVF. Okay. Uh, and with egg freezing, you don't in general need to be as worried about hyperstimulation. Yep because there are specific drug regimes we can use, medication regimes, that really dramatically reduce the risk of that happening, even when high egg numbers are achieved. Um, but those medications would not be usable in IVF um, where we're trying to get someone pregnant in that month. Okay, so we've had our first lot of hormones and this might be a daily injection or it might be a one-off injection. And then seven days later, what do we do? So after you have a certain number of injections, usually the first scan's on day eight. Mm -hmm. um, and an example of when that wouldn't be the case is if you had a shorter menstrual cycle, we might do it a few days earlier. Um, but if your scan's on day eight, then we decide what's happening. Mm -hmm. And in some cycle types, from the beginning of your cycle, you've been taking a medication as well to stop you from ovulating. Right. But in many cycle types called a GnRH antagonist style cycle, at about day eight, it's the right time to start to take a medication to stop you from ovulating prematurely. Because when you have an egg developing in a natural cycle, there's a gradual rise um, in the estrogen level that's made by that single egg and its surrounding follicle. When you have lots of eggs developing at the same time in synchrony, um, the estrogen rise that occurs occurs quite a lot earlier than it would if there was only one egg. And so that estrogen rise is the body signal to ovulate. And we don't want to ovulate too early if we're going to collect eggs. Certainly not. And when you say take medication, what you mean is inject yourself every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so not necessarily, but uh, that's the antagonist regimen. You do need an injection every morning to stop yourself from ovulating in that, in that kind of cycle. Um, there's other cycles around where you don't need that, but 
in terms of someone with a healthy ovary that can make a lot of eggs in one go, antagonist regimens are very popular because those kind of regimens can dramatically reduce the risk of a woman having hyperstimulation. And when IVF was first invented, hyperstimulation was pretty common uh, because people didn't have such sophisticated tests to dose adjust and to look into what dose was right for what patient. Ultrasounds weren't as good. It's a bit like TV's come a long way in the last um, kind of 30 years in terms of the quality of the image. Same with ultrasounds. And also that certain drugs that we now have hadn't been developed yet. So IVF from 30 years ago was not as safe as it is right now. Okay. So I've, I'm saying me, so I've had my stimulating hormones. I'm taking my antagonists. Throughout this, I'm in regular contact with your nurses to make sure everything's going fine. And I've had a scan. Next step, so where are we now? We're on day eight. We've had a scan. We're taking, we're injecting ourselves or alternative to stop ovulation. What happens next? So at that point in time, we'll decide when your second ultrasound's going to be yep. based on what we find on the first ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And I'll have made a plan that's either to continue the original plan or to change it slightly, yep. kind of tweaking medications to... What you see in the ultrasound. Depending on what I see in the ultrasound, if it's exactly as planned, going perfectly, I wouldn't change a thing. If it's something like the ovaries are going a little bit more slowly than I'd expected, I might change the dose of medication that you're using or I might, if you're using a long-acting form that's not a daily injection, I might top up sooner mm-hmm. um, with, a, with a different medication. So, so basically it's an individual assessment and, and making a plan where to go from here. And from the first ultrasound scan, I generally can, can have a pretty good idea of when the best time would be to plan an, an ultrasound scan um, in a few days' time that lets me decide when your egg collection is going to be. Okay, so a few days later I come in, I have my next scan and everything's going well. So we schedule the egg collection. What happens? So there's a final medicine in an IVF cycle which is known um, as a trigger. And a trigger medication is the medication that is the antidote to the medication that you've been taking to stop ovulation from happening. This is ovulating all at once. Yeah, so we don't want you to ovulate before your egg collection, but we do want the eggs to undergo a series of complicated processes getting ready for ovulation. And we want to do the egg collection just before the ovulation happens. So the timing of the egg collection from the trigger is really specific. In my clinic, the average patient would have what's called a 37-hour coast, which means a 37-hour difference between when their egg collection is scheduled and when their trigger time was was allocated when the trigger's been um, decided to be given. Okay, so one of your nurses calls me and says, your egg collection is at 9am on Friday this Wednesday when I get this call and you need to do your trigger at 8pm. Yeah, exactly. So the trigger is, could be a few things. It's a type of medication again. It could be an injection. It could be taken orally. No, 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 it's, it's not orally. Um, you can take, there is a nasal trigger um, that's possible to give, a nasal spray, but most triggers are injections. generally injections. Okay. And so I do my trigger. And then it's 36 hours later, so I go to hospital. What happens? 
So when you go to hospital for your egg collection, like any hospital admission, you'll meet with the, the nursing staff and the theatre staff on the day and, and be checked in. Um, you'll have been asked not to eat or drink anything from midnight on the night before. Mm-hmm. Often it's a day you, procedure. It's a day procedure. It's a pretty simple procedure. You often are allowed to have sips of water uh, up until a few hours before the procedure, but definitely not within two hours of the procedure time. Um, but certainly no solid foods from midnight the night before and no thickened fluids like milk or anything like that. And so when you come into hospital and get ready for your procedure, uh, you'll go into theatre and meet an anaesthetic doctor. I generally see my patients um, on the day because I do egg collections personally for every patient. So I see my patients on the day and and answer any last minute questions and and, um, make sure all the paperwork's in order if they need any medical certificates or anything like that. And then they go into theatre the anaesthetist puts a drip in their hand so they have IV access in case they need some medications to go to sleep. And then we do a check in theatre and that is an ID check and it's actually part of our accreditation as an IVF unit that we do this ID check and everybody hears it. So it's myself as the doctor, the anaesthetic doctor, the nurses in theatre and the embryologist who's co-located in the theatre. Mm-hmm. And we just make sure that we have the right person and that all of the tubes that the egg fluid and the eggs are going to go in are correctly labelled and there can be no mistake, which in, in this kind of situation is really important. Yes, really important. And at this stage, the patient is under general or sedated? No, so the patient's awake for the check. Okay. And then when the drip is, is in the hand and we've done all the checks and we're ready to start, the anaesthetist gives some medication to help the patient go off into a sleep. Um, it's not a general anaesthetic. It's what's known as a twilight anaesthetic or a conscious sedation. Mm-hmm. So uh, what that means is the patient is comfortable, relaxed and unaware of what's going on. They're breathing through an oxygen mask, not a breathing tube. Uh, and what it is is it's a kind of anaesthetic that's very short. So the procedure itself generally takes between 20 minutes and 30 minutes. Okay, quick. It's relatively quick. Uh, so once the patient's asleep, um, I wash my hands and get ready to do the procedure. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing is I'm doing an ultrasound while the patient's asleep in real time. Mm-hmm. And I gently pass a needle while compressing the ovary into each follicle, each egg sac, if you like, the follicle structure that surrounds the egg. Yep. And the fluid within that is drained by my needle. And after I've drained one egg, I go to the next. Um, And not every follicle will give us an egg, but there's a potential to get one egg per follicle. Um, And one of the reasons we don't get an egg from every single follicle might be that the egg over time has broken down and degenerated. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be that we miss the egg. It's a microscopic structure and you don't always get every egg. Um, Sometimes we see empty cumulus cells, so cells that were around an egg and the egg is no longer intact. And sometimes we get an egg, but it's not a usable egg. So a proportion of the follicles that we drain, usually about 60%, give us a usable egg. And the egg is microscopic. Even when I'm doing the procedure, I can't see the egg. So you're draining the fluid. Where does it go? I'm draining the fluid under ultrasound vision Mm -hmm. and I collect that into a test tube. And then that fluid is given to my colleague who's an embryologist, a scientist, who's in the theatre with me in real time. And he or she searches through that fluid using a microscope to find the eggs. Okay. And then what happens to the eggs? So once the eggs have been found, 
uh, they go to the lab, which is co-located in the same building as the operating theatre where I work. And um, in terms of what happens next, the eggs are looked at under a high-powered microscope upstairs, an even better microscope than the one we use in theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, the sperm's been analysed that day, so the same day that there's an egg collection, mm-hmm. there's a sperm collection. Yep, we'll um, talk about that in more <laughs> another time. <laughs> um, yeah, so depending on what's been decided as the plan, whether we're going to do IVF, um, which is what we call standard insemination, where the sperm is prepared and optimised and then put next to each egg, or ICSI, where we've actually stripped the outer layer of the egg and injected a sperm directly inside the egg. Um, so that's the next process in terms of, of making embryos and trying to make a baby. In terms of egg freezing, um, after an egg collection, the eggs are prepared for freezing yeah. um, and frozen immediately. So it's basically the same until the eggs are harvested. And then once the eggs are in the, the dish or wherever they are, that's when either they're fertilised or they're frozen. That's right. Okay, so if they're frozen, that's the end. That's the end of the egg freezing process. It's over. Your eggs are in a freezer. You get told how many you've got um, and then you're done. You just wait until you want to use them. If you're going f- through all of IVF, your eggs are out, they've been checked, your sperm's out, it's been checked, you then put them together and then what happens? We wait five days? I usually, for most of my patients these days, would be um, watching very carefully and deciding on the basis of their particular circumstance whether we're going to do a fresh embryo transfer, whether we're going to do an elective frozen embryo transfer, whether we're going to test embryos genetically or not. Um, So each individual course might be a little bit different. If someone's going for an embryo transfer, we watch the embryos in the embryoscope um, over five days and we analyse how they've been going and which embryo we think on the basis of A, what it looks like, and B, how it's behaved, is the most likely to end up as a live-born baby. And then we choose that embryo to go back first. And best practice in modern IVF is to transfer a single embryo at a time um, because in advanced laboratories where we're using world-class technology, the chance of getting pregnant from a good quality embryo is, is very high compared to compared to other situations. So it's at least a 30 to 40% chance of taking home a baby from a good quality embryo that's transferred. And so if we put two embryos back, yes, the chance of getting pregnant is a little bit higher, but the chance of having a twin pregnancy that's a high-risk pregnancy is also higher. And because we're very good at freezing embryos and embryos that are frozen and warmed are pretty much equally as likely to be a baby as a fresh embryo, Mm -hmm. uh, we're much more confident putting one embryo back at a time. So when I hear of people being inseminated with three embryos, that's a no-no. Yeah, look, I think that's bad practice in my opinion. Most of my colleagues, I believe, would probably agree uh, because triplets, if all embryos take, is an absolute disaster for all involved. Uh, Babies that are triplets are always born preemie, very premature. They can die if they're born extremely premature Uh, and babies that are born very premature uh, also even if they survive are much more likely to need an extended time in a neonatal ICU, undergo painful and invasive procedures and potentially have developmental issues moving forward. So the healthiest message is that the 
gold standard and best case scenario is to aim for one healthy full-term baby born at a time. Especially if you are of advanced age and you're going to be carrying the baby, it's just one. Yeah, so when we talk about risk of multiple pregnancy, um, the risks are not just for the baby but also for the mum. Uh, so if you're a mother and you're carrying twins, um, not only are you more likely to have a premature birth, but you're also more likely to develop complications like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, high blood pressure. Um, you're much more likely to develop the need to have a caesarean delivery. Yep. You're more likely to have issues with pelvic instability and discomfort during pregnancy and also with prolapse of the uterus and bladder and bowel continence issues moving forward in your future. So there's so many issues that are just maternal. The main issue with babies is prematurity uh, because, you know, babies that are born premature, while we are so lucky to live in the times that we live and many do survive, we also do lose babies that are born prematurely. Very few survive before 23 weeks. And of babies that are born extremely premature, many have intellectual, neurological, physical disabilities. IVF is not an easy process. It sounds like not so much fun. Injections, hormones, going under. You really just want to do it properly once and not take risks and one baby at a time. Yeah, look, I think I agree with what you're saying, but it's also important for people to understand that IVF is not a silver bullet. And the average number of IVF cycles in Australia that result in a live birth is 2.6. So an important message is there's not necessarily a baby in every batch of eggs. And um, IVF, while, you know, there are in in my unit alone at Melbourne IVF, we've made 60,000 IVF babies. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an amazing science. It's an amazing technique. But it's not a silver bullet. It's it's not a one size fits all. The best way that you can ensure your best chance of IVF success if you need to go down that road is to holistically optimise all lifestyle factors before you start, to be realistic, to be kind, for, to, kind to yourself, yes. to choose a doctor who looks after you well, um, to choose a lab that uses the best technology to give you the edge that you might need. Yeah and um, to stick with it if you've got a reasonable prognosis and your doctor's telling you that, you know, the chance that you'll have a baby is good because it doesn't always work the first time. Great. So that's why you've just got to be really careful of all of the steps before you launch into IVF. Thank you for listening to Knocked Up. We hope we've made this complicated and often sensitive topic a bit easier to understand and maybe navigate. For more information about Raylia and Women's Health Melbourne, you can visit the website, Instagram and Facebook, all under Women's Health Melbourne. Questions you'd like Raylia to explain in future episodes, you can leave a comment underneath the podcast or email podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com. We'll be back next week.